Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The GOP senator pushing the immigration compromise says he's frustrated with his fellow Republicans intentionally putting out false information. The lead starts right now. That feeling of frustration from Senator James Lankford, the conservative Oklahoma Republican pushing the border deal, Speaker Mike Johnson, is just one of many in the GOP quick to trash this compromise that at least will try to do something to slow the number of migrants coming into the U.S. We're going to hear from a House Republican piling on, calling the proposed plan a, quote, capitulation, plus Senator Lankford will be here in just minutes. And... Historic rainfall flooding parts of Southern California. Some cities getting a month's worth of rain in one single day. CNN is on the ground in one of the hardest hit areas. Plus, the surprising news from Buckingham Palace this afternoon announcing that King Charles has cancer. What does this diagnosis now mean for the monarchy and how is his prognosis? Welcome to the Lean on Jake Tapper. In two hours, a high-stakes meeting on Capitol Hill that may determine whether the Senate's bipartisan border deal ever sees the light of day. Tonight, Senate Republican leaders will try to convince their colleagues to pass the bill, which would dramatically change immigration law for the first time in decades in the United States, in effect, severely restricting asylum claims at the U.S. southern border, plus much more. Advocates for the bill need 60 votes to advance the plan, and as of right now, it's unclear if they can get there. And even if the bill does make it through the Senate and to the House, House Speaker Mike Johnson says it is dead on arrival there. This House Republican opposition brought to you by former President Donald Trump, who is attacking the deal as too weak. He wants to put the crisis on pause so he can campaign on the issue for November. This despite the fact that Republicans have, of course, for years fought for an immigration overhaul. And despite the fact that a chief architect of this deal is Senator James Lankford, one of the chamber's most conservative Republicans, who Trump has praised for being tough on the border. Senator Lankford, who today said he is frustrated with fellow Republicans intentionally putting out false information on the bill, will join us in just a second. But first, let's get an update on all of this with CNN's Lauren Fox on Capitol Hill. And Lauren, so much focus on the bill's Republican opposition in the House, but now it seems to be facing some growing opposition in the Senate as well. Exactly. And in order to even get to the House, this bill has to pass out of the Senate. And right now, there are already 18 Republican senators who say that they are opposed to this legislation, including Senator Steve Daines, who is the Republican leading the campaign arm for the Senate majority, trying to take back the majority, excuse me. And it's very clear right now, Jake, that there's growing opposition. Senator John Cornyn, a Republican, saying he has serious concerns about this bill. And John Cornyn is someone who has been praising Langford's efforts for the last several weeks, saying that it was important for Republicans to try to find a solution on this issue. But Speaker Mike Johnson standing by his opposition, getting even more specific. I've been very clear from the very beginning about the elements that were necessary to solve the border crisis. These are not Republican talking points. This is what we have been told by the experts on the ground. 
and that includes the sheriffs there in the counties that are on the border. It includes Border Patrol agents, officers, longtime veterans of the agency. And they said you have to fix asylum. You have to fix parole. You have to end the catch and release. Minority leader Mitch McConnell saying that he is still continuing to work to get support within his conference. But when pressed by our Ted Barrett whether or not he was planning to back the bill, he did not answer. We should note McConnell often does not engage in hallway interviews, but he had answered that previous question, Jake. Interesting. Walk us through what is in this bill. How would it impact border security? This is a major piece of legislation in what it does to overhaul current border policy. It includes $20 billion to change policies at the southern border to get more resources down to the southern border. In addition, it makes it much harder to qualify for asylum in this country to even get started in that process. And those who don't qualify in that initial interview are more quickly de deported. It also speeds up the process. So instead of it taking up to 10 years, it would just take a matter of months. The bill also creates a new emergency authority in, to ensure that President Biden can shut down the border if border crossings reach a certain threshold. It also requires that if those border crossings reach a threshold of 5,000 on average in a day for a week's time, Jake. The bill also includes $14 billion in security assistance for Israel, $60 billion for security assistance in Ukraine. And we should note that this is the process for trying to get that Ukraine aid, something that the administration says is badly needed. If this bill falters in the Senate, it's really unclear to see what the path forward would be for getting Ukraine the money and military assistance that it said it's needed. James. All right, Lauren Fox, thanks so much. Let's talk right now with Senator James Langford, Republican of Oklahoma. He's the primary Republican negotiator for the Senate border deal, which we should note was just endorsed by the Border Patrol Union, which is a fairly conservative uh, organization. Um, Senator, I'm going to ask you about some specifics in the bill in, in just a moment. But first, the bill does appear to be losing some support within the Senate. We hear multiple GOP senators publicly opposed. It needs 60 votes to advance to the House. Do you think you can get 60 votes? Will it make it out of the Senate? We will know more uh, this evening, actually, when all of us get together. Obviously, the bill text came out yesterday. People have had time to be able to look at it. Uh, as you mentioned, some people are already making their statements about their opposition. Other folks are saying their support. But when we get together tonight, we'll have an opportunity to be able to talk about it and see next steps on it before procedural vote on Wednesday. I want to give you a chance to go on the record, perhaps correct the record, on some of the claims made by uh, opponents of the bill. Uh, a new statement from House GOP leadership today says, quote, the bill expands work authorizations for illegal aliens while failing to include critical asylum reforms. Even worse, its language allowing illegals to be released from physical custody would effectively endorse the Biden catch and release policy, unquote. Is that true? Uh, actually, none of that is actually true on it. Let me walk you through a couple of things with that. The first thing is, the most, the most basic element is, this is at ending catch and release. It dramatically increases the ability for detention. It has a way to be able to monitor and to be able to track those individuals. Uh, if we have to, if we can't actually have enough space to be able to actually hold them, it still leaves open the possibility of using remain in Mexico, which this administration has used a little. Obviously, the Trump administration used a lot. So all those things are actually protected. But if you have a large number of people cross, 
and you don't have capacity, you're going to have to be able to figure out what to be able to do with those individuals. So we do track that. As far as the work permits, actually, it's the opposite of that. Today, there were 1,500 work permits that were given out by the Biden administration at ports of entry because migrants signed up in advance on it. So they got uh, just work permits. They don't qualify for asylum, didn't even ask for asylum. They just got work permits on it. That ends that process. And also current law is if you cross the border and just apply for asylum, you also get a work permit. We also end that practice and it actually moves it to you. You've got to actually go through the higher standards uh, to request asylum, meet those standards. And then once you meet those standards, then you would get a work permit. So as odd as it sounds, the accusation of creating work permits, we are literally the opposite, taking work permits away. Here's a claim being circulated on Twitter or X by Elon Musk, who posted, quote, the long term goal of the so-called border security bill is enabling illegals to vote. It will do the total opposite of securing the border, unquote. Now, I know that Elon Musk is not an expert on illegal immigration or the border, but he has a huge megaphone. Um, he does. Explain what he's talking about here. Is he wrong? Uh, well, I, I think he needs to go back to doing the two million Teslas that are currently being recalled right now to be able to focus in on that. No, it's not focused on trying to be able to get more illegals to vote. That's absurd uh, in the process on it. It is against the law for anyone that is not a citizen of the United States to be able to vote in the United States in any federal election. That remains so. Obviously, we're not dealing with that. I've heard some people say, hey, you're not taking on illegal voting, and so I'm going to oppose this bill. By the way, neither did H.R. 2 that came out of the House that so many people have said was the perfect border security bill. It also did not deal with any issues of voting because that bill was seen as a border security bill, not a voting issue bill. Republican Speaker um, Mike Johnson last night posted, quote, as the lead Democrat negotiator proclaimed under this legislation, the border never closes. Uh, Johnson goes on to say if this bill reaches the House, it will be dead on arrival. Um, the Speaker uh, essentially took a one quick look at the bill and immediately dismissed the, the legislation out of hand. What's your response to how Speaker Johnson has, has handled this all? Uh, obviously, he's trying to be able to deal with a raucous caucus, and he's going to continue to be able to work to be the Speaker of the House and to continue to be able to find consensus among leaders. The House leadership immediately came out and said, hey, they oppose this. I've had quite a few House members that have reached out to me directly and said, hey, I'm reading it, and there's actually a lot of very helpful things here. This is an area that some people just have a difference of opinion. Some people say if we can't do everything, we should do nothing. And there are others that say if we can make some progress in key areas, as you played the tape on earlier of the speaker in the hallway saying the key things that Border Patrol and other folks are telling us they need, they need a change in asylum, need a change in parole, and they need to catch and release. That's actually the exact target of this bill itself. We change the asylum process, make it much more difficult, which turns around people faster. Uh, we focus in on the parole issues that are being abused right now, close down those lanes of abuse on the border, and then we deal with the catch and release. That is why the National Border Patrol Union came out today and endorsed it and said why this bill is not perfect and we need more. It does make real progress, and they see this as a way to dramatically slow down the numbers that are coming across the border, because once you start actually deporting people, the flood stops at that point. People aren't going to pay $10,000 to a cartel to just get deported. And that's what would happen under this bill. We would detain and deport in a much faster process. Uh, obviously, your, your fellow Republican Mitt Romney has been pretty uh, outspoken, saying that the reason the bill is having difficulties right now is because Donald Trump wants it as a campaign issue. So he doesn't want any attempts to solve it uh, to be successful. And in fact, uh, President Trump, former President Trump, uh, today is slamming uh, your work, specifically your work on the bill. Uh, take a listen. Just uh, to correct the record, I did not endorse Senator Langford.
Uh, he ran, and I didn't endorse him. This is a very bad bill for his career. I don't know how a, a Republican senator can put can actually put a thing like this forth. So just to correct the record, um, Donald Trump did endorse you. Um, he did. But regardless of that, why do you think he's going after you and this border bill, considering this is the most, and I've been in this town for a lot longer than you have, this is the most conservative immigration compromise that I have ever seen come to this level. Previous efforts under Bush and under Obama were far more uh, permissive, far more liberal than this. Why do you think Trump's going after you? Yeah, I, I don't know, obviously, other than he, he has a different job than I have right now. His job right now is running for president, and so he's trying to be able to manage that. And obviously, a chaotic border is helpful to him in the process on that. If Donald Trump was president right now, let me be very clear, we would not have the chaotic border that we have right now. Joe Biden is not enforcing the border, even not just like Donald Trump, not like Barack Obama. Uh, we have six times more people crossing the border now than we had under Barack Obama. Uh, so this president's clearly not enforcing the border. But for Donald Trump, he's focused on the campaign. I'm, I'm the lead Republican on the Homeland Security Border Management Committee. And so my focus is the national security focus. I'm going to do whatever I can to be able to secure the nation as fast as I can, regardless of election cycles. This is something Americans are looking for and have asked for for a very long time. We have got to be able to secure the border. Yes, it's going to have to be a bipartisan. It's the United States Senate. It always has to be bipartisan. So let's work together to be able to figure out where we can find common ground and actually solve an issue. We'll solve as much as we can, then start working on the next level. So, again, I covered, I've covered this for a long, long time, this debate. In 2013, uh, there was a much more liberal version of this a compromise floated in the Senate. The Gang of Eight uh, was the four Democrats, four Republicans. Uh, two of those Republicans are still in the Senate. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Marco Rubio of Florida, um, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, John Hoven voted for it. Um, I, I understand that Senator Rubio has come out opposed to this deal, which is, as I said, more conservative than what he was pushing. Have you talked to Rubio or Senator Graham? Uh, I've talked to Senator Graham recently. Obviously, he's been out publicly supportive of this deal, trying to do whatever he can to be able to help this move along, knowing it's it's trying to get us a good progress on that. Senator Rubio and I haven't spoken recently on that, but everybody has their different opinions on this. Everybody's got to be able to look at the text of the bill and determine what what works, what doesn't work on it. We didn't get everything in the process on it. Obviously, there's a lot more that I'd like to be able to get. But again, I go back to the most basic thing. We're getting as much as we possibly can. And we're going to try to be able to move forward because we've got to stop having the thousands of people that are crossing the border every day unchecked. Republican Senator James Langford of Oklahoma. Good to see you, sir. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to see you. Thanks. This hour, we're also tracking the cancer diagnosis for King Charles. The situation so serious, his son, Prince Harry, is making plans to return to the UK. CNN's Max Foster has connections with the royal family and will go to him uh, at Buckingham Palace next. Plus, the threat of another response after more attacks on U.S. forces and a series of strikes that tried to fend off the violence. Stay with us. In our Health Lead today, Britain's King Charles has been diagnosed with cancer. Buckingham Palace says the 75-year-old monarch started treatments today and will be postponing his public duties until further notice. Officials say the, quote, form of cancer was discovered during a corrective procedure for an enlarged prostate last month, although a source tells CNN that he does not have prostate cancer. What kind of cancer he does have, we still do not know. 
CNN's Max Foster is outside Buckingham Palace in London. Max, what else are you hearing about the king's diagnosis? Well, it was luck, really, that they noticed it. He'd gone in for this enlarged prostate and a procedure there. He had some tests back and they showed a separate cancer, so unrelated to the prostate. Um, He's since today come back to London for outpatient care. He's staying at Clarence House, his home here in London. He may visit the hospital, but they're not expecting him to have a stay in hospital. Uh, He's got the best medical care, I'm told, but his doctors have told him he can't go out and carry out public duties. Not because he's unable to physically, but they're concerned that with these treatments, it may make him more vulnerable. Um, So he's unable to carry out a lot of his public work. He's been told he can't do that. He can, however, continue with his high-level constitutional work, signing uh, bills into law, for example. He'll continue with his weekly audiences with the Prime Minister, but it will end there. You know, the mechanics of state will still keep turning, but he won't be the public face of the monarchy. So we're expecting to see Queen Camilla and Prince William step up a bit more in that vacuum, which is a pressure on Prince William, because he was meant to be off work looking after his wife, who had been in hospital. So, Max, what happens if King Charles ultimately is too sick during his treatment to do any work at all, any official duties? Well, as I say, the system just doesn't work without him signing off on things for government. The government, you know, the parliamentary system collapses. So there is a system in place. Uh, So they are called councillors of state. They are members of the family who would step up and carry out duties on his behalf, effectively like a committee, um, if he was unable to do so. So if, for example, he had to have an anaesthetic or he became incapacitated. I'm told by my sources that those councillors of state have not been appointed we would be told if they were appointed. So we're waiting for those sorts of announcements or if it gets better, I'm told we're not going to get a running commentary. But it does put pressure on the Queen and William in particular to, you know, be the public face of the monarchy, which needs to be there to represent the head of state. You know, they're a brand as much as anything else and they need to represent continuity. And without the King, without the Princess of Wales able to carry out any public duties, it does put pressure on the rest of the family, particularly when Harry and Meghan have opted out and Prince Andrew was forced out. Uh, By the way, um, Harry is going to be coming over to visit his father, so they've been speaking. In London for us at Buckingham Palace. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Dr. Martin Sanda. He's the chair of the Department of Urology at Emory University School of Medicine. He's the director as well of the prostate cancer program at Emory's Winship Cancer Institute. So, Dr. Sanda, a a source says that the king does not have prostate cancer, but that his cancer was discovered during his recent procedure for prostate enlargement. What might that tell you about what he possibly could be battling? Well, it's hard to say. Um, Certainly, we uh, do occasionally find incidental cancers, uh, so-called incidental cancers, when doing procedures for enlarged prostate. The most common incidental cancer we find in that situation is a form of prostate cancer that can be quite readily managed, sometimes actually can be monitored, doesn't necessarily always require treatment. Uh, Sometimes a form of bladder cancer can be found incidentally during a procedure for enlarged prostate or prostate obstruction, difficulty with urinating. The type of prostate cancer, I'm sorry, the type of bladder cancer that we sometimes find in that setting is most commonly a a superficial or very early type of bladder cancer, which uh, uh, is also very amenable to treatment. Uh, So it's really hard to say what they did find, but one can speculate that maybe there would be some additional 
diagnostic tests that might be uh, needed as a part of uh, getting a handle on that. And, and that might uh, uh, be a reason for uh, some time off of uh, duties, but uh, that might also allow him to return in, uh, in good shape uh, soon. So the king is stepping back from public duties uh, while he undergoes outpatient treatment, as you alluded to. How, how, um, how tiring, how wearying can these tra- treatments for cancer be, especially for a, a 75-year-old? Well, you know, I think uh, if it uh, is one of these early types of bladder tumors, for example, uh, the treatments can be uh, uh, pretty straightforward, uh, requiring perhaps just uh, a um, uh, sedative anesthetic or a brief outpatient procedure with anesthesia. Uh, So um, the recovery process for that type of a circumstance uh, can be pretty quick. Um, And uh, it would be unlikely to find something more invasive or advanced uh, if the... uh, procedure being done was for um, for uh, something that was uh, planned and uh, well investigated beforehand. Uh, so the more likely scenario would be something uh, that could be managed pretty readily, um, though it might require uh, some additional procedures or anesthetics or maybe some diagnostic tests uh, like additional biopsies that might be that might be indicated. Well, let's hope it's a it's a painless procedure for him and uh that he gets well soon. Dr. Martin Sanda, thank you so much for your expertise and your time today. Appreciate it. Coming up next, let's go to Southern California, an area that has never gotten rain like this. Coming up, what's fueling this historic situation and the lingering dangers in the hours ahead. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we're back with our Earth Matters series and the disastrous and deadly flooding currently wreaking havoc on the west coast of the United States. Right now, more than 14 million people are under the rare risk of excessive rainfall, with parts of Los Angeles forecast to get half a year's worth of rain by this time tomorrow. Partially to blame is what's called an atmospheric river. That means storms that usually travel from west to east across the country are, are kind of stuck and parked right now over Southern California, dumping inch after inch of unrelenting rain. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, scientists say there's no doubt climate change is also making these bad storms much, much worse. The Hollywood Hills, rain lash, not sun kissed. Mudslides, rock slides, homes evacuated, homes lost. This is the foundation of 10334 Caribou Lane. And this is where the house sits now. Sunday was the wettest day in Los Angeles 
in nearly 20 years. More than four inches fell downtown. That's more than a month's worth of rain. That's a water rescue underway. The LA River rose seven feet in just nine hours. Some creeks are up over 12. All this down to a so-called atmospheric river up above, a conveyor belt of moisture fueled by El Nino and the unusually warm Pacific. Atmospheric rivers can carry 20 times more water than the Mississippi. And El Nino is now classed as very strong, only the fourth time it's reached that level in 50 years. Combined with oceans already warmed from climate change, it's supercharging these type of storms. El Nino also changes the jet stream, making storms more likely to take aim directly at California. This one has been moving slowly, sadly. Atmospheric rivers are something that probably many of us never grew up with knowing anything about, but now they're sort of ever-present in our lives. And it means an extraordinary amount of water can be dumped on a community. LA and beyond 14 million people now officially at high risk, level four of four for excessive rainfall. Remember, this state was recently in a mega drought, then record rainfall last winter, and now this. Scientists call that weather whiplash and say such violent swings will become increasingly common as the planet warms in years to come. On Sunday, hurricane force winds cut power to over half a million customers, mostly further north, hitting 77 miles per hour at San Francisco airport, peaking at 102 on Pablo Point. Angelinos today told to exercise caution if you must commute. Schools closed in more mountainous Malibu, but stayed open across much of LA. The mayor says Angelinos just aren't used to this kind of weather, but with climate change, they'll have to get used to it. And the mayor just declared a local emergency, activating more of those swift water rescue teams and others to add to the thousand plus firefighters who are already on duty. I mean, just look at the amount of water we are talking about. And it's not over. I've never seen such relentless rain in L.A. The hope is that this is going to move off, move out of L.A. County. But then the fear, Jake is that the system, might, the system might come back and dump even more water on this saturated, heavily populated county. Jake. All right, Nick Watt in Los Angeles County for us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. CNN Chief Climate Correspondent Bill Weir is here, of course. And Bill, uh, we all remember the West Coast just experienced some record high temperatures. Now they're having record flooding. Are they related? They are, yeah. The, the average atmospheric river, and they happen all the time, about 500 miles wide, 1,200 miles long, and the size and intensity depends on how warm the oceans are below it, right? And so a warmer planet, it's just this heat engine now. And so when that river of moisture that has 25 times the Mississippi River, only it's vapor in the sky, it hits the mountains, and that's like squeezing a sponge and just dumping. And, and as Nick alluded to, Daniel Swain, who's a climatologist at UCLA, did a call today. He was worried that it could have a windshield wiper effect. Like this storm is going to go across L.A. County, come back, oh, man. and then go across again over the next couple of days. Now, are we all vulnerable to these types of atmospheric river events? They, you know, they've happened where they go from California to the East Coast and they, you know, spreading sleet and snow, depending on that. The big concern now uh, in a 
warmer place like California, if that stays as snow, that'll be great. The snowpack is only about 50% what it is historically. They still have drought concerns out there. And this rainwater is wasted when it comes to that drought. So hopefully that's, uh, it stays cold enough for that snow to remain. Now, scientists also say that El Nino is partially to blame for this weather in California. And that actually affects all of us everywhere in the entire world, right? Well, it starts in the Pacific. There's a natural phenomenon that happens in the Pacific, but now we're officially one of the four strongest El Ninos in the last 50 years. This one is. This one is, right. So that's natural, plus the unnatural warming from man-made activities, fossil fuel pollution, the double whammy effect that we're having. El Nino could ease in the next year or two, but you still have the climate change on top of that. So a lot of hope from folks is that these are lessons. It's not a storm to grit your teeth and get through, but these are lessons for how to adapt and how to think about living in places like California in the future. Crazy. Bill Weir, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. The U.S. threatening another response as Iranian-backed militia groups keep up attacks on American forces. A veteran military pilot will join me next with what that response might look like. In our world lead, a respite today after three straight days of U.S. attacks on Iranian-linked militias uh, across the Middle East. B-1 bombers flying nonstop from the U.S. took part in Friday's missions. Video obtained by CNN shows projectiles streaking away after an explosion and fire at suspected weapons storage facilities in Iraq near the Syrian border. A U.S. official says 84 of the 85 targets in Iraq and Syria were damaged or destroyed. And there are no indications as of now of Iranian casualties. The strikes expanded into Yemen on Saturday with British forces joining in the attacks. Sunday, the U.S. struck several cruise missiles that U.S. Central Command says were preparing to launch from Yemen. With us now is former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, Republican from Illinois. We're actually having him on, um, not because he's a congressman, because he's a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air National Guard. Uh, so I'm going to call you lieutenant colonel this time instead of Congressman Kinzinger. So right. is this new, this kind of retaliation against the Iranian-backed militias, or has this been going on for a while? I mean, looking back on your military experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, tell us about whether reprisal attacks like these really deter Iranian-backed fighters and militias? Well, first off, they don't, they don't seem to. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but I think we need to go into this eyes wide open. Look, I, I was in Iraq in 08 and 09, and I was flying as part of a task force. I'll keep the task force name nameless, although I think it's unclassified now, that specifically was going after Iran and its proxies that were both you know, uh, ex- expanding the explosive form penetrators. These are those uh, roadside bombs that were killing American troops that were destabilizing Iraq and going after Americans. So this went back to 08 and 09. And you you look since then, it, you know, there's this idea that since October 7th, this activity has stepped up in the region. But if you go back all this year, all the previous year, all the way back to my service in Iraq, it's not really a week that goes by without the U.S. retaliating against these groups to some level or not. There's not a week that goes by where Israel doesn't attack some Iranian-linked group or even directly IRGC assets, for instance, in uh, in Syria. So the idea that this is going to be a, a push off these attacks and it's it's going to deter this, I think we have to go eyes wide open and say it's good to respond. I hope this works. But ultimately, Iran is willing to supply fighters to fight the United States and Israel to the last person willing to do it. And I got to tell you, there's no shortage of people willing to do it in the Middle East.
A Houthi official is already promising retaliation for the U.S. strikes against Houthis in Yemen. According to a U.S. official, uh, U.S. and coalition forces in Syria have been attacked three times since the airstrikes began on Friday. How effective do you think these retaliatory strikes will really be? Um, and, and, I mean, they do seem to be much bigger than what we've seen in the past from the U.S., right? Yeah, they are bigger. I mean, in the past, we've attacked empty warehouses on purpose to send a message that doesn't send a message at all. It looks like we're trying to de-escalate. And in fact, that encourages the opposition. So this is a step in the right direction. But again, the question is, has this ever deterred Iran? So Iran is willing to put as many weapons into theater through proxies to continue this fight as long as there's anybody willing to take them. And there's no shortage of people, especially if every time we attack, we're waiting at night so there's no bad guys around. You know, I, you know that's not a bad strategy. But I think we're ultimately going to have to start thinking about inflicting real damage. And I'm not talking a full-scale war. I'm not even talking uh, Tehran itself. But inflicting damage on the IRGC, the Re Revolutionary Guard Corps, directly or Iran directly, and that may be through some of their maritime assets or spy ships that we know exist. It's not fun, but look, Israel has attacked Iran repeatedly for the last number of years, and uh, it has not escalated. And they hate Israel even worse than they hate the United States. After Soleimani was killed, Jake, there were people in Congress with me that were breathless, that were guaranteeing this is World War III, this is escalatory. And what actually happened is for the next six months, we heard very little from Iran. Um, so I think it's a lesson for us to keep in mind when we look at how to deter. Well, the U.S. says so far the U.S. knows of no Iranian fighters who have been killed in the strikes. At the same time, of course, I've heard many foreign policy experts make this remark that Iran is willing to fight to the last Palestinian or Iran is willing to fight to the last Lebanese uh, fighter. I mean, they give weapons to these groups and they do the fighting for them. Um, is it important to have Iranians not be killed, even Iranian terrorists who are targeting U.S. forces? Or, or is this work all being done by Iraqis and Syrians and Lebanese and Palestinians for them? Well, look, I think it's important for Iran to pay a price. And Iranian militants, Iranian IRGC commanders that are going into Syria, that are going into Iraq, to ultimately have to pay that price. Look, again, Israel, there's not a, there's truly not a week that goes by where you don't read about some high-ranking IRGC commander killed by Israel, and it's not escalatory. I mean, that's what when you send military troops in to create a proxy force, those troops are in danger. And now, again, I'm not against the U.S. saying we don't want to escalate. We really don't. But when you continue to show that you don't want to escalate, I think it takes away some of the effectiveness of deterrence. I'm not going to question what the administration is doing, but I think if this continues, there has to be, uh, frankly, a bloody nose or a solid punch to the face against Iran. And you'll see them, I think, go quiet like they did after Soleimani was killed. Hmm. What do you think is the best way of getting things to calm down in general, settling the Israel-Hamas war, getting tougher with Iran? Every possible road seems uh, treacherous and potentially dangerous. Yeah. I mean, look, it really is because on October 7th, the world changed in the Middle East. I mean, it was it was brutal. It was their 9-11. And to sit here and expect that three months later, we would have stopped executing a, a war against terrorists, you know, after 9-11 and somehow in January is, is unrealistic. 
I, I think the administrations play in a decent role of trying to mitigate, trying to mediate, but also allowing Israel to continue to execute that war. We'd love to get to a point where there's a ceasefire without Hamas in command. And that's where the pressure from places like Egypt, from Jordan, have to come in to say, okay, we're willing to participate in this, but Hamas cannot stay in power. And I think the U.S. needs to make it clear, we don't seek a broader war. We don't. But we are the United States of America with the most effective military in the history of mankind. And if you attack us or attempt to try to attack us, we will absolutely make you pay back 20 times any damage you think you can inflict on us. And that's when people stop messing with us. When you stand back and you're like, gosh, we're going to blow up an empty warehouse. Yeah, they're going to keep trying to hit you in the face because you haven't punched back yet. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Adam Kinzinger, always good to see you, sir. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the you serious too, scrutiny on prosecuting crime as violence grips the nation's capital. The proposed changes to fight back, could they serve as an example nationwide? Stay with us. In our law and justice lead today, a series of senseless violence in the nation's capital has residents on edge. As leaders there scramble to try to get soaring crime under control over the weekend, a former Trump official died after having been shot days earlier by a carjacker as he waited to pick up his wife in a busy shopping area of town. Data from Washington, D.C.'s police department shows that D.C. had 274 homicides last year, a 35% jump from 2022 and the highest recorded in 20 years. Other crimes such as robberies and carjackings are up as well in Washington, D.C., and as CNN's Gabe Cohen reports, residents are fed up. A violent carjacking spree, the latest senseless crime to rock the nation's capital, shattering Antoinette and Jacob Walker's family. It's just what? a numbness to know that this is the last place where he actually was alive. Their son, A.J., a father of two, shot and killed in last week's spree. I wake up every day with this, realizing that my son is never coming back. That spree also took the life of a former Trump administration official, Mike Gill, also shot during a carjacking while waiting to pick up his wife in a crowded downtown neighborhood at rush hour. He died over the weekend. The suspected gunman was later fatally shot by police. While violent crime has dropped in most major cities, it has surged in the nation's capital, up 39% last year, with robberies up 67% and carjackings roughly doubled, though police data show crime has dipped in recent months. And no one is immune. We're less than a mile away from the U.S. Capitol. I covered the carjacking of Congressman Henry Cuellar last fall, just blocks from the U.S. Capitol. He was physically unharmed. D.C. police offering unsettling advice. Avoid driving alone, stay in the middle lane, and don't stop to help strangers. They've passed out Apple AirTags so people can track their cars if they're stolen. Mohammed, a Grubhub delivery driver, has seen and experienced enough. Here is not safety. I have three attacks in Washington, D.C. He won't work in D.C. anymore after teens tried to carjack him last summer. The scuffle caught on camera. Neighbors jumping in to help. And sometimes I cannot sleep after the attack. I cannot sleep. Delivering in Virginia, his salary is cut in half, but he says he feels safer. This crime surge has made D.C. a punching bag for Republicans. Former President Trump has vowed a federal takeover if he's elected. We're going to take it away from the mayor 
And again, that doesn't make me popular there, but I have to say it. Many blame what they see as lenient laws that put repeat offenders back on the street, as well as a drop in arrests and prosecutions. Even among the district's liberal leaders, there's a new effort to strengthen criminal laws. The Department of Justice is now bringing in more prosecutors. And D.C.'s police department is opening a new multi-agency crime center as community members beg local leaders to keep them safe. You don't think the city's done enough to hold people accountable? No, no, they haven't done anything enough to hold people accountable. And look, Jake, as the number of crime scenes like the one across the street where AJ was killed grows here in D.C., we have been asking for months for the police chief to speak to us directly about these alarming numbers. Look, it is a complicated picture, but as of now, the police department has declined those requests. Jake? Downtown D.C. is losing business as a result of this crime wave. Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Today, Donald Trump made his final pitch to the U.S. Supreme Court, trying to keep his name on ballots in this big election year. We're going to have that story, plus new evidence showing how many Americans feel about his legal problems. Stay with us. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. A scene today underscoring the urgent need for action at the border. Migrants risking their lives trying to cross the Rio Grande River. This morning, Texas authorities pulled a migrant woman and child from the cold waters. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., Senate Republicans are set to meet tonight, one day after this bipartisan compromise deal was put on the table. It appears to be on the brink of collapse. We're going to talk to a House Republican who has some tough words for the deal, had them even before the text was out. We'll talk to him about why. And as Israel nears four months into its war, with Hamas in Gaza, mounting anger directed at Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, plus what President Biden reportedly said about the Prime Minister behind closed doors. And leading this hour, the brand new CNN poll gauging how much Americans actually care or know about Donald Trump's legal problems. In fact, most want his federal election subversion case resolved before November. Here's the breakdown. 48% of those polls say it's essential to have it resolved before the election. Another 16% also want it resolved but say it's not essential. 11% do not believe the case needs to be resolved. 25% say it does not matter. We're going to start with New York Times senior political correspondent and CNN political analyst Maggie Haberman. And Maggie, here are just some of Trump's legal problems front and center, just an incomplete list, but just to bring our audience up to speed. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear oral arguments in these cases on whether or not he can be on the ballot. Today, his um, legal team uh, filed a brief accusing his challengers in the case of pursuing a, quote, anti-democratic case against him. So that's today. Also, we're waiting on the federal appeals court to rule on Trump's claims to presidential immunity. Uh, then there's also we're waiting for a ruling in the civil fraud trial against Trump in New York, his son's and Trump Organization also on the hook there. And this comes after Trump was ordered to pay E. Jean Carroll $83 million after her defamation suit last month. Can you take us inside Trump's mind right now? What must he be thinking? I mean, we know he's a man who uh, embraces grievance, but these are this is a lot. It's a lot, but, but 
he is also an expert compartmentalizer uh, in a way that we've seen very few people who are in the political realm uh, be. And so he looks at these a couple of different ways. The E. Jean Carroll verdict, we know has infuriated him. We know it's a huge amount of money. We know that it is a huge amount of money he doesn't want to have to pay. And he will have to pay some of it, even as he's appealing it. Some of this is going to have to go forward. We know that he is waiting for the ruling in the New York Attorney General civil fraud case against his company. The Colorado ballot case, um, his team actually feels pretty good about its chances at the Supreme Court, and they see that as helping them politically, which is why you saw something like that filing today. So there is no one linear through line for him with all mm-hmm. of this litigation. It depends on what we're talking about. So can I ask a question about the E.G. and Carroll case? Because this is always so strange to me. It seemed to me, just as a legal perspective, I'm not talking about the truth of what happened. I wasn't there. But it seems to me, as a, from a legal, legal perspective, that that case was winnable for him. Uh, but he didn't try to pursue it. Right. I mean, he didn't participate. He wasn't there. Uh, He had Alina Haba as his attorney, not exactly who I would want representing me for anything. Um, Why? Uh, I think a few reasons. But you are correct. There are a lot of people who argue at least the first case. I don't think the second case. was. No, no, no. But but whether or not he was actually, quote unquote, guilty in in the civil case. Well, but again, there were two separate cases. So one was defamation and sexual abuse. The other was just defamation. Once you had the rulings in the first, you were going to get. A right. defamation. A hundred percent defamation. But I'm yeah. talking about, I'm the, talking first about one. the abuse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, that one, some lawyers have made the point to me privately, and I've seen some people say it publicly, that that was winnable, that if he had approached it differently, if he had had a, you know, a, a seasoned trial team, which right. is not what he ended up with, um, at least initially he did end up later with Joe Tacopina, um, but, but that was late in the process. Uh, and if he had shown up himself, to your point, it might have made a difference. I'm not convinced him showing up, Jake, would have made a difference just based on his behavior in the courtroom that I saw when he was in the second sure, trial. Sure, he was rude, but what if he had acted like a normal human being? I, I, I okay. I, and 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 what if what if he was an entirely different human being who who didn't view these things the way he does? But right? if he had, so, but if like when a, a policeman pulls you over, not right. like you've ever been pulled over. When a policeman pulls me over, I am polite. Appreciate that. Thank you. I am polite. You know, when I get pulled over for speeding or whatever, I am polite to the police officer, and that is how you treat people in law enforcement. I think that Trump has a very different view of how he can behave in certain proceedings, having been president. And frankly, he tended to view those things. You know, he he has viewed official proceedings as either something that you sort of deal with through a phone call from one party to another, or if you end up in that situation, there's a lot of showmanship. And I'm not sure what the what showing up necessarily would have helped him with. On Trump's presidential immunity case, uh, whether or not he has the right to do anything he wants as president of the United States, if you're president, how much could the decision impact the second Trump administration if there is one? Uh, A lot. I mean, but it depends on what that ruling is, right? If there there is a a ruling that presidential immunity doesn't apply here, then there is generally a a belief that he is going to have a problem arguing a January 6th case if it goes forward. Uh, Should they rule the opposite way and suggest that there's broad immunity, then that's got massive implications for every president going forward. And but from this particular president, who has basically said any action a president takes should not be considered within the constraints of the law, that has very specific implications. Maggie, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Let's turn back to our political lead. This evening, Senate Republicans are going to gather to discuss the long-awaited compromise bill on border security, coupled with aid to Ukraine and Israel and other hotspots. Here's what Republican Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma, one of the lead negotiators on the bill, told me last hour. We didn't get everything in the process on it. Obviously, there's a lot more that I'd like to be able to get. But again, I go back to the most basic thing. We're getting as much as we possibly can, and we're going to try to be able to move forward because we've got to stop having the thousands of people that are crossing the border every day unchecked. 
Let's talk now to Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee. Even before the text of the bill was released last night, he signaled he would be against it. Congressman, thanks for joining us. So let's start with what we just heard from Senator Lankford. What's your reaction? Isn't getting something done, something that, by the way, the border police, the Border Patrol Union, which is pretty conservative, supports, isn't that better than nothing? Well, I think we're starting off with nothing. You're saying that you're going to allow 5,000 people in a day. I mean, obviously, you're saying that something that's illegal, you're making it legal. Um, you know, $60 billion for Ukraine. The, the single largest expenditure in this thing is directly to Ukraine. They should have just called it Ukraine. But, I, but let's, I think everybody's trying to pick a fight. What we should be doing is individually passing these bills. There's aid in here for Israel. Um, Speaker Johnson is, we're, we're moving forward with something that this week. And Ukraine, I believe there'd be enough money for Ukraine, but everybody wants to fight. I, I, I wouldn't vote for the money for Ukraine, but I think there'd be enough to pass it. I think that all the other money w would probably pass in some form or another, but they're gonna lump it all together. And I just don't see it happening. I'm not gonna vote for something that allows 5,000 illegal folks a day, but I'll tell you what I really think whose fingerprints are on this, if I could go a little deeper, I think it's these national chambers of commerce. You know, they want free or cheap labor. They want people that won't have insurance. They won't, they won't have any representation. And they know when they fall off a dadgum building and, or hurt themselves when they're cleaning a motel room, that guess what? They're not going to come back against the big business owners. So that's who we should be directing our anger at right now, Mr. Tapper. I, I think that's clearly whose fingerprints are on this thing. Well, you, you can call me Jake. Jake, yes, sir. Let's focus, if we could, just on the immigration part of it, um, because I think it was a Republican, at least in the Senate, to combine it with the Israel aid and the Ukraine aid. Um, but I, I'd love to talk to you about it, because you just said it allows 5,000 people, uh, it, migrants, illegal immigrants, into the country. And the bill said that's not accurate. What they say is when the average number of crossings exceeds 5,000 people, a week, which it has every week but one in the last four months, everyone crossing illegally every day is rapidly deported out of the country without an asylum sc uh, screening. Um, so they're saying it, it just it it's a trigger. It doesn't let in 5,000. It says 5,000 encounters, which is not the same thing as 5,000 people let into this country. 5,000 encounters triggers an immediate deportation of everyone. Well, it should be zero encounters. Um, we should not be allowing anybody into our country. Now, do you honestly think that they're going to stop at 5,000? I mean, we don't have any way now of, of, of closing in this, this gap or anything. They're just, the border is just wide open. I've been to the border. I know, I guess you've been to the border as well. Yeah. Um, and and it, there is no way in the world we're going to stop at 5,000. Uh, 5,000 is a trigger. Well, that's great. But at what point up to that, so 4,000, 99, 999 are okay. I just don't buy that. The number should be zero. I think that's a that's just a stopping point. And of course, the um, the, the the money for the lawyers and the work work permits, and then of course the um, the District of Columbia is going to be the the sole original jurisdiction. A very liberal court system. We know that. I, look, I'm conservative. I'm not angry about it. I'm not mad at CNN. I'm not happy about any of the other stations either. I just I, I just don't think this is the way to do about it. Go about it. You do it in so, a closed, dark room with everybody, yeah. all the all the players. You bring everybody in first of all, and that's not what happened. Well, that's not. That's not what House Republicans did when you guys passed H.R. 2. I mean, that, that was passed on a purely party line vote uh, with no thought to the fact that whatever you pass 
is going to have to get through the Senate where it needs to get 60 votes and then have to be signed into law by a Democratic president. Um, but let me just re-underline uh, the fact that the Border Patrol Union, who anyone who knows anything about this issue knows, is a conservative group uh, that's very frustrated with President Biden. They put sure. out tweets mocking him all the time. They put out a statement endorsing this deal. They say it's, par- it's, far- it's not perfect, but far better from the status quo. If the Border Patrol is for it, why are you against it? Well, their backs are against the wall. They need some relief. They have zero support. I've been down there. Their morale is awful. They just said to me, look, Tim, we just like to be able to enforce the laws we have on the books now, and they're not doing it. I don't think there's going to be any uh, okay of enforcement of, of the past laws. H.R. 2 was a good, solid bill. It went to the Senate. You know what they should have done? In the spirit of compromise, they should have taken that bill and, and added to it or taken away and sent it back to the House. But what did they do? It's still sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk. Nothing has come of it. This is all gamesmanship. You know it and I know it. All they're trying to do is drive people to the polls, their side or our side, and they don't want to solve anything. All they want to do, this is about staying in power. It's about the deep state or uniparty or whatever you want to call it in Washington, D.C. And the National Chambers of Commerce have got their their greedy little fingers involved in it, too, because it's just about the dollars. And that's the only thing this that's all immigration is about. It's about power. It's about getting people to the polls. It's about cheap labor. And that's all the bottom line is. And, and, and both groups would sell their countries out. They're selling their country out to stay in power. And that's what this is all about, Jake. Both groups, the Chamber of Commerce and, and who else? The Washington, D.C. establishment. They don't, care establishment. About this country. they don't care about this country. They close the door. They don't see the color black or white or brown. All they see is green. And that's what this is all about. It's what it's always been about. You think that describes Senator Lankford, who's a pretty conservative Republican from Oklahoma, who Donald Trump in the past has praised for being tough on the border? You, you think he's just part of this sellout establishment who only cares no, I, about... I, I don't know that for a fact. I talked to him shortly before the prayer breakfast, the bipartisan prayer breakfast, not not 20 feet from where I'm standing right now last uh, last Thursday. But no, I think he, he genuinely has gone in, and, but I just don't think he's... He's dealing realistically with what will happen in America and how this is to be perceived. I, I, this thing's going to be dead on arrival, Jake. I, I, I firmly believe that. I don't even know if the Speaker of the House will even bring it up in the spirit of H.R. 2. Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee, it's always good to see you, sir. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Jake. It's always a pleasure, brother. In the race for 2024, Governor Nikki Haley not letting up on the age argument, using it again and again to go after Donald Trump. Why she's Banking on that being effective in her home state of South Carolina, where Donald Trump leads in polls. That's next. People making decisions on our In our 2024 lead, Republican presidential hopeful Governor Nikki Haley made a surprise appearance on NBC's Saturday Night Live this weekend, where she hit Trump on his mental fitness and his age. Are you doing okay, Donald? You might need a mental competency test. You know what I did? I took the test and I aced it. Okay, perfect score. They said I'm 100% mental. As Haley tries to narrow the gap between her and Trump in South Carolina's Republican presidential primary, CNN's Kylie Atwood takes a look now at how Haley's grumpy old men attacks against Trump and Biden are playing among South Carolina's retirees. These are people making decisions on our national security. These are people making decisions on the future of our economy. We need to know they're at the top of their game. Nikki Haley not backing away from her argument that the American president shouldn't be in their 80s. Mandatory mental competence.
competency test for politicians over 75 years old. It has been a critical piece of the 52-year-old's pitch to voters from day one, one that she has both sharpened. Why are we allowing ourselves to have two 80-year-olds who can't serve eight years, who both are diminished, whether it's in their character or in their mental capacity? And played with in recent weeks. Six cents, remember that one? I see dead people. <laughs> yeah, that's what voters will say if they see you and Joe on the ballot. Oh. Often to an audience filled with retirees like this bar in Hilton Head, South Carolina. I just don't think our country should be with somebody who's going on its way out when we still have so much young blood. For 69-year-old Maureen Bolger, the idea of moving to a new generation is energizing. South Carolina was the fastest growing state in 2023, largely because of an influx of almost 40,000 retirees. And Haley is betting that they get her argument. I think older people see it too. 61-year-old Anna Memo also fits that target audience. Whether it's the Biden ticket or the Trump ticket, I do feel that it's very important to look at age and consider age and, and cognitive, cognitive skills. But not everyone considering the state's former governor found it to be the best. I do think that we still have people that are 78 and 80 that can be senators and representatives. For Edward Spears, currently an undecided GOP voter, it's just a part of the game. She wants to be elected. If I was a younger candidate, I would do the same thing. That's just a political strategy. And for older Trump supporters, even those interested in Haley, like Carol and Greg Cardi, who moved full-time to Hilton Head nine years ago. I think she's a neat person. We read her book. The tactic of going after Trump's age hasn't been a decisive factor, because they are squarely set on voting for the former president. It's typecasting the seniors, and that's not right, because we're individuals. But if she weren't doing these age things, it's not like you would go for her if she had left that argument in the past. But if Trump were not running, yes, I would. I'm old, so I'm stubborn. Now, Jake, as you can see from our conversations with older voters, most of them who were looking for an alternative to Trump pretty much well received those age arguments that Haley has been making. The question is, how many of them are actually here in South Carolina, where Trump remains quite popular? And the other thing I want to note on fundraising, Haley's campaign said over the weekend that in the month of January, they hauled in $16.5 million in donations. That is their biggest fundraising month to date, giving them a significant financial booth heading into South South Carolina primary in less than three weeks and potentially beyond. Jake. All right. Kylie Atwood uh, in Spartansburg, South Carolina. Thanks so much. Let's bring in our political panel to weigh in on this and so much more. Uh, for former Democratic Congressman Max Rose, uh, Haley's called for mental competency tests for politicians over 75. But in her NS, uh, SNL appearance this weekend, she turned her attack line on Trump and Biden's age into, into a punchline. Do you think that, I mean, uh, do you think it's ageism, and do you think it will hurt her? It, it doesn't really matter. She, her campaign's over. I mean, statistically speaking, she's going to lose South Carolina by 20, 30 points. And right now, she's being funded by an array of anti-Trump forces, obviously, of which I consider myself one. What's fascinating, though, about the overarching dynamic is this is actually quite helpful for Donald Trump. 
you know, people are forgetting the disastrous four years that was the Trump presidency, and that's why you're seeing an uptick in his general election numbers. The sooner that this primary is over, the sooner that people can understand that this election is a very simple binary choice between crazy and normalcy, and the Biden campaign is looking forward to that contest. And see, according to its latest filing with the uh, FEC, the Federal Election Commission, the RNC has only $8 million in cash on hand. That's the party's lowest fundraising in a decade. Yep. The DNC, uh, the Democratic National Committee, has $21 million cash on hand. Yesterday, in an interview on Fox, uh, former President Trump suggested uh, that the she, he, he alluded to possibly the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, who's been very loyal to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he alluded to her leaving, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps uh, unwillingly. Uh, mm-hmm. Take a listen. How's Ronna McDaniel doing? Uh... I think she did great when she ran Michigan for me. I think she did okay initially in the RNC. I would say right now uh, there'll probably be some changes made. That's a polite, that's a polite yes. version of Donald Trump, but he's basically suggesting that she's on her way out and that he's going to be a big part of why. Um, yeah, and would anyone be surprised if Trump just decided I'll be the interim de facto <laughs> head of the RNC? I mean, I, I wouldn't, and it almost doesn't matter who he installs there because it will be someone that will do everything he says. But I'm just reminded of that September in 2015 when Reince Priebus, the then head of the RNC, flew up to New York to beg Donald Trump to sign a loyalty pledge, which should have been the other way around. You know, Donald Trump should have been begging the RNC, give me your support and all of your infrastructure and resources, even though I'm a very unconventional candidate. And I think the flip of that really just foretold what was going to happen to the Republican Party and the RNC, a total Trump takeover. We have with us today for the first time Coleman Hughes. Congratulations. You have a a brand new book out uh, tomorrow. It it is called The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind America. In the book you write, among other things, quote, colorblindness is the wisest principle by which to govern our fragile experiment in multi-ethnic democracy. Can you explain the case you're making for a colorblind society and and the obvious rebuttal, which is that sounds nice, Mm -hmm. but you have uh, institutionalized racism in housing and in other parts of the country Mm -hmm. that make that impossible? Yeah, so colorblindness used to be the standard liberal philosophy. For a moment in the 60s when we passed the Civil Rights Act, the idea was that we are going to get race out of public policy and we're going to deal with the legacy of slavery with racial inequality by an intense anti-poverty program that would benefit the black poor and the white poor alike, but would disproportionately benefit the black and and Hispanic poor because blacks and Hispanics are disproportionately likely to be poor. But that we could do all that on the basis of socioeconomic class rather than race. In the past 50 years, there have been a group of scholars, and especially in the past 10 years, it's become much more popular with the rise of critical race theory and so forth, to say that actually colorblindness is not the right way to go. It's a Trojan horse for white supremacy. All it does is allow racial inequality to persist. So what we have to do is aggressively put race into every public policy, including even COVID emergency policies that prioritized emergency aid based on race. I argue that actually the civil rights movement had it right. If you go back, you read Martin Luther King's book, Why We Can't Wait. He says, yes, we have to address the legacy of slavery. Yes, we have to do something special uh, in order to repay the debt to black Americans. But that something should be socioeconomic class-based policy doesn't 
discriminate against anyone on the basis of skin color and still tackles poverty. That, that should, I think liberals and Democrats should reclaim that as a default position. So uh, race and the Civil War uh, specifically have been a topic that have come up in the 2024 wow. presidential election. Here's another clip from Nikki Haley trying to make light of her fumbled answer a few weeks ago. I was just curious, what would you say was the main cause of the Civil War? Um, And do you think it starts with an S and ends with a lavery? (laughs) Yep, I probably should have said that the first time. Now, in your book, you argue slavery is one of the most heinous examples of race-based policies in the country. Yes. I'm curious as to what you make of the fact that this is still so awkward for some people to talk about, um, like uh, Governor Haley when she gave that first answer and did not mention slavery uh, when asked mm. what the cause of the Civil War was. Well, I'm glad she corrected it. Uh, the, the common talking point on the other side has been that the Civil War is really about states' rights. Now, the easiest way to know that that's not true is because when uh, northern states wanted uh, to, to fight fugitive slave laws, in other words, they didn't want to have to essentially extradite slaves that escaped from the South back to the South, uh, this, no, no one in the South said, actually, those northern states have their own states' rights, and they don't have to right. extradite those. those, those uh, so it, it wasn't about some principled concern about states' rights. It was about the clash between half the country that wanted to be a slave society and the other half, which didn't. All right. Uh, so, so good uh, to have you on the show. We'll have you back. And congratulations again uh, on your book. Really Thank appreciate you. it. Um, thanks to all of you for being here. And we will be right back. Coming up, a new report documents President Biden was using rather sharp words to describe Benjamin Netanyahu behind closed doors. The White House denies that he said it, although it sure does sound like him. The critique also gets at mounting criticism about the Israeli prime minister as Israel nears four months of war with Hamas. Stay with us. In our world lead today, even though a spokesman for President Biden is denying to Politico's Jonathan Martin that President Biden privately described Benjamin Netanyahu as a, quote, bad effing guy, unquote. He didn't say effing, obviously. You don't have to look very far to find other reports describing the president's strained relationship and unease with the Israeli prime minister. And as CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports for us from Tel Aviv, Israeli voters' patience with Netanyahu is also wearing very thin. On the streets of Tel Aviv, wartime unity beginning to crack. To call for election in wartime, it's very, very difficult. It's hurt my stomach to speak up against uh, my government in wartime while my friends are inside fighting. But it's a must. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu facing a mounting wave of anger and discontent that could threaten his hold on power. After nearly four months of war, Israeli forces have yet to rout Hamas from Gaza. Hostage families are demanding he agree to a ceasefire to free their loved ones. The pressure is everywhere he turns. This is an extremely difficult time for him politically. The pressure that he's getting from the right wing is ironically from people who are sitting in government with him. As talk of a ceasefire grows, far-right members of his government are threatening to walk, putting his governing coalition at risk. I say this clearly, a reckless deal means a dissolution of the government. Tensions are also rising to the surface between Netanyahu and his chief rival, Benny Gantz, the former defense minister who joined an emergency unity government days into the war. 
Gantz's right-hand man, Gadi Eisenkot, going so far as to call for new elections in the coming months, citing a lack of trust in Netanyahu. If elections were held now, a recent poll found Netanyahu's party would lose half its seats in the 120-member Knesset, while Gantz's party would nearly triple in size, likely making Gantz prime minister. Sources tell CNN Gantz is looking for the right moment to make his exit, but that he is likely to stick around as long as the war is ongoing. Benny Gantz is walking a tightrope. Yes. But notice that everything he's done, not just in the last three months, but even before, it's as if he's reading the polls. And whatever the majority of Israelis want, that's what he's going to do. The polls right now don't want him to leave the government. When you see those polls change, take out your stopwatch. As for Netanyahu, he sounds like he's already back on the campaign trail, appealing to his right flank. My insistence is what has prevented over the years the establishment of a Palestinian state that would have constituted an existential danger to Israel. And the politics of fear that have kept him in power for so long. If someone has a different position, they should show leadership and candidly state their position to the citizens of Israel. Now, all of this pressure, Jake, doesn't mean that the next election is around the corner. This is still a country at war, and even the Israeli prime minister's toughest rivals are still being very cautious about how hard they push. But in many ways, the Israeli prime minister's political fate is tied up in this war. The longer this war lasts, the longer the Israeli prime minister is likely to remain in power. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv for us. Thanks so much. Families living through this nightmare are also begging the world, do not forget their loved ones who have been held hostage by the terrorist group Hamas for 121 days now. One of those family members is going to join us next. In our world lead, uh, this Wednesday will mark four months since the terrorist group Hamas unleashed its brutal attack against Israel. And for the dozens of families whose loved ones were kidnapped or viciously murdered, October 7th really never ends, including for the family of Or Levy and his wife Enav. They were both at the Nova Music Festival when Hamas attacked. Enav was killed. Or was taken hostage. They have a two-year-old son, Almog. Or's brother, Michael Levy, uh, joins us now. And Michael, first of all, let me say I'm so sorry about what happened and that you and your family continue to go through this nightmare. How are you all holding up as you mourn your sister-in-law and care for Almog and fight to get your brother back? Uh, well, as you said, uh, since October 7th, it's been a nightmare. Uh, for me, it's one very long and very bad day. Uh, all of us, it's... We, we pray it will end soon and they'll, they'll be back soon. I know your nephew is too young to understand what's happened. Um, how is he? How do you keep the presence of his parents alive? Well, uh, unfortunately, he might not understand exactly what happened, but he knows exactly what he feels and he misses them. He calls them all the time. He cries when we mention the word dad or mom next to him. So we we had to tell him that uh, his mother won't come back. It's, it was the toughest thing we ever had to do. 
and we we try to support him and show him love but uh, obviously it's not the same it's not the same as his mom and dad last week um Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, tried to assure representatives of the Israeli hostage families that his government is making any making every effort to get the hostages home. Um, do you think they are? Do you think that the government's doing enough? Well, I'm a big fan of uh, bottom lines. Uh, the fact that they are not here now means that uh, none of us is doing enough. Not me personally, not the media not the Israeli government, not the U.S. government. We all need to do more in order to get them back. Do you know that your brother's alive? Is, have, you, have you heard from any of the other hostages who might have seen him? Unfortunately, we haven't heard uh, anything from the other hostages. Uh, but we know that he was kidnapped uh, alive and that he wasn't injured. And we have no reason to believe uh, that uh, the, the situation now is different. Michael Levy, thank you so much. And we'll be praying uh, for Almog and for your brother. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back. And back with our coverage of the Middle East, dozens of people were killed during airstrikes in central and southern Gaza by the IDF. At least 14 people died. Many more were injured after the airstrike hit a mosque in central Gaza yesterday, according to a doctor and other eyewitnesses. Israel tells CNN it is checking on this incident. Here's Nada Bashir and a warning you might find this video to be disturbing. Surrounded by chaos and panic, the wounded lay quiet. This little girl's pain masked by shock. It is all too much. This mother shields her child's eyes from the horror, telling him, don't look. In the morgue at the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital, the bodies of those who did not survive lay shrouded on the ground, the tiles beneath still bloodied. A doctor here says at least 14 were killed as a result of a series of airstrikes by the Israeli military on this mosque in the central region of Deir el-Balah. The IDF, however, did not respond to CNN's request for comment on the incident. Locals here are left to sift through the rubble, retrieving fragments of bodies. Those killed said to have been leaving the mosque following morning prayers. This neighborhood is full of people who have been displaced, all taking shelter in schools. Clearly, there's nowhere safe anymore, not our mosques, not our schools, not in the streets. Nowhere in Gaza is safe. But just as there is no escape from the airstrikes, it seems there is also no escape from grief. The families of Gaza's latest victims, old and young, left to share in their unending mourning. Elsewhere in this hospital in central Gaza, at least 20 women and children have arrived seeking safety, forced to flee once again after being ordered by the Israeli military to evacuate their shelter in Gaza City. The Israelis came and surrounded us with tanks. We were not able to go out. There was no food, no drinks, no water. We were not even able to turn on the lights. 
We were scared they would see us. They took all the men and started beating them. They stripped their clothes off and took them to the tanks. After that, they told all the women to go down to the basement and they deployed explosives. They wanted to lock us in and then blow up the whole building. They wanted to kill us. We told them that we are civilians, that there are children with us, that we have done nothing to deserve this. We begged them and then they agreed to let us out. Troubling accounts like this, shared with CNN by several women forced to flee central Gaza. Though CNN has received no comment from the Israeli military. What comes next for these families and for all in Gaza is unclear, but there is little hope left. In Rafah, now home to more than a million Palestinians, tent cities for the displaced continue to grow. This region, once said to be a safe zone, now facing relentless airstrikes. Israel's defense minister has warned that troops will soon enter the southern city. They say targeting terrorist infrastructure. But there are deepening fears over the potential for a humanitarian catastrophe and the looming threat of untold bloodshed in the south. Nether Bashir, CNN, in London. And our thanks to Nada Bashir for that report. Will the Chinese government cut off CNN signals as we report this next duty, next study? Uh, rather odd comments that flooded a social media account for the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. What so many people were ranting about. That story next. And we're back with our world lead. Tens of thousands of people in China are venting their frustrations with the Chinese economy. In an unlikely place, the U.S. Embassy's social media accounts, a post by the U.S. Embassy in Beijing on Weibo, a platform similar to X, about protecting wild giraffes, attracted more than 160,000 comments, many of which were rather unrelated to giraffes. One comment read, Who can help me? I've been unemployed for a long time and I'm in debt. Mark Stewart is in Beijing. Mark, what's driving this? Yeah, hi there, Jake. The reality is this. The Chinese economy is in bad shape and the government does not want people to talk about it. For young people right now, it's very difficult to get a job. The Chinese stock market has seen record-setting declines. People feel defeated. But here in China, there is no such thing as a free speech forum, as we see in the United States and other parts of the world. Social media platforms, even even, uh, editorials that we see in the newspaper, are all monitored. They're all censored. They're all edited by the government. So in this case, where the U.S. Embassy made this innocent posting about giraffes, of all things, there is an opportunity for people to respond. And it was seen as an opportunity by many people here in China as a way to air grievances that simply is usually not possible on these kind of social media forums. So that is what fueled all of the response, Jake. So, Mark, there have been times, as you know, when the signal for CNN China, the channel in China, goes to color bars when we report certain angles of news stories that the Chinese communist government doesn't approve of. How often does that happen? And are there specific topics that lead to the color bars? Jake, that happens daily, several times a day. In fact, depending on what hour uh, we broadcast, uh, our programming from our studio here in Beijing is regularly censored. This is an attempt by the government to control 
the narrative. So it's a part of life here in China. Any kind of topic, even if it's reported from somewhere else in the world that could shed China in some kind of negative light, that is censored. But it goes beyond that. I mean, right now, economists, uh, economic commentators, they have been told to watch what they say. And if they cross a line that the government seems to be unacceptable, they will fight, face consequences. Their social media accounts will be suspended. I mean, I think the real thing, Jake, that the government wants to avoid, especially on this issue of this economic despair, is any kind of public protest. Because as we have seen over the years, these public displays, which happened during the COVID uh, era here in China, uh, they really portray China in a negative light. So the hope is by controlling things early, it will prevent things escalating to perhaps a much larger level. Hmm. Fascinating stuff. Mark Stewart in Beijing, thanks so much. New video just into CNN shows cars stuck in a mudslide in Beverly Hills today. That's Beverly Hills, a consequence of the disastrous flooding in Southern California. Right now, more than 14 million people are under the rare risk of excessive rainfall, with parts of Los Angeles forecast to get half a year's worth of rain by this time tomorrow. Let's bring in CNN meteorologist Elisa Rafa in the Severe Weather Center. Elisa, walk us through what's causing this and what comes next. We've got a ton of that moisture coming off the Pacific there, Jake, and it's being fueled by warm oceans, an El Nino pattern that's pumping this atmospheric river. Flash flood warnings continue for Los Angeles County, including places like Burbank, Pasadena, Universal City, through 6 o'clock local time as the rain just keeps pumping. Look at the hose from L.A. to Las Vegas. I mean, the rain has not stopped really since yesterday, just continuing to fall over the same areas over and over. That's that fire hose of moisture that we call the atmospheric river. I mean, some of the images that we've seen today have been incredible. Not just the mudslides and the landslides, but the rivers that are raging and angry, and you can see them just overflowing their banks over parts of Southern California. I mean, look at some of these rain totals. Bel Air nearing a foot of rain just since yesterday. Woodland Hills over 10 inches. Downtown LA is over six and a half inches just in the last two days. Now, when you look at the numbers since February 1st, because it's been a pretty wet week for them, they have already almost gotten their entire winter's worth of rain. And when you look at the annual average, they're almost getting close to that too. 14 inches is their average in a year. And again, just since this week, they've gotten over eight. It's an incredibly rare high risk that we're continuing to track here. It's issued less than 4% of the time, but responsible to 80 for 80% of the flood damage and 40% of the flood uh, deaths. So just incredibly rare and incredibly impactful. Dangerous, life-threatening flash floods continue. It's already saturated, so any more rain is going to create more flash flooding and landslides. Jake. All right, Elisa Rafa, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show at, at The Lead CNN on X. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.